0: Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Word. We thank you for uh, teaching us about how to worship you and how to relate to you. And we thank you for showing your love to us through your Word. I pray that as as we look at the Bible today, that you would be at work in our hearts and in our minds so that we can apply these truths to our lives. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So this week in the uh, Comeback Kids sermon series, we are making a bit of a jump in time. So uh, last week, um, Pastor Mike talked about what Nehemiah found after he had gone back home for a while, back to his regular job of working for the king back in the capital, and then he came back to Jerusalem about 10 or 12 years later, and what he found was that the people had drifted away from God and from their commitment to follow Him and follow His ways. And that was because people drift. You drift, I drift, we all drift off course, unless, as Pastor Mike talked about last week, we man the oars to keep ourselves on course in life. So how do we man the oars? I'm gonna give you five quick ways to man the oars. First thing, read your Bible on a regular basis. Daily reading is the best. Um, You can do it right on your phone. You can get the Bible app and it'll remind you every day and you can choose different reading plans to read. Um, Or you can read a real paper Bible, which is also pretty nice. But be reading the Bible. That's one way to to keep yourself and your life on course. Second thing, spend time in prayer every day. So be talking to God. um, And uh, and just spend time praying on a daily basis. Third thing, get yourself to church as often as possible. Um, If you have plans for the weekend... Uh, come on Thursday. We have two options for you so that if your, if your schedule conflicts, you can come to the other service. And uh, that's part of why we have a Thursday service so that when you have weekend plans and you're going off someplace, no problem, you just come on Thursday. Um, and be part of that worship service. The music, the testimonies, the announcements, the sermons, those are all ways of keeping your spiritual life from drifting. Fourth thing find a place to serve. We have a lot of opportunities for service um, in our church. We just talked about the diaper dash as one way to serve, but it's great for you to have a place where you regularly are doing work for God and His kingdom, and that will also uh, keep you on track spiritually. And the last one I want to mention is join a journey group. We just mentioned how uh, this uh, today we're having a m- meeting for all the leaders, and we're planning our groups and stuff, and in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a group catalog that's going to be distributed, and uh, you should get yourself into a journey group. If you're not already in one, get in one, and it will help you to have a stronger spiritual life if you are part of a small group community that is uh, doing these things together. So that was uh, where we left off last week. We talked about Nehemiah and his return to the people and how they had drifted away and how we can prevent spiritual drift. And so Nehemiah's career then was coming to an end as he was helping the people of God to uh, make that spiritual course correction to correct their drifting. And today we are jumping ahead in time to Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament and the last chronological uh, book of the, of the Old Testament, and he was the last prophet before there was a 400-year gap after Malachi until John the Baptist uh, came on the scene as another prophet. And during that whole time, uh, God was not bringing any new prophecy to His people. It was uh, what the, the Bible that was written, and that was as far as it went. Um, so we aren't sure exactly how long after Nehemiah Malachi was written, But it doesn't look like it was all that long. Um, uh, When we read the book of Malachi, one of the first things we notice is that the problems that Malachi deals with are actually pretty similar to the problems that Nehemiah dealt with. So the course correction in Nehemiah's day was not enough to fix the problem of spiritual drift, which isn't really very surprising. Because uh, in order to prevent spiritual drift, it's a regular practice of manning the oars. And, And anytime we're not manning the oars, we're going to drift. And it's important to have these regular times when we course correct and we get back on track and we straighten out our spiritual lives. It takes continual effort to keep us from drifting away from God. And so for the last two weeks now of the Comeback Kids that are this week and next week, um, we're going to be in Malachi, and we're going to be learning about God and His relationship with us from this prophet. So let's start into Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Now, that, that is a big thing right there. Um, there's a reason why this prophecy starts out with God declaring His love for the people and them declaring their doubt of His love. This is the problem that so many of the other problems that come up in the book really stem from. This is the foundation of it. These people do not understand God's love for them. And obviously, this is actually a problem for most of us at one time or another in our lives. Uh, Even when we acknowledge as a true point of doctrine that Jesus loves us, we don't really grasp the extent of it. And sometimes we recognize the truth intellectually as a point of doctrine. Yes, I know, God loves me. But we don't really feel it. Sometimes when life isn't going our way, we don't feel very loved by God. And I'm pretty sure that's where Malachi's people were. It isn't that they were unaware that the Bible taught that God loves them. See, God's love for them was not new information that they had never heard before. But they were not experiencing God's love right then in a way that that felt real. And so here in Malachi, God reminds the people of some historical facts. So he goes on to say, uh, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the jackals. Okay, this needs a little bit of explanation in order to understand what, what he's talking about here. Um, and, and to see how this is supposed to help people see how God loves them. Um, so it starts out talking about Jacob and Esau, right? So Jacob and Esau are these guys from way back in the book of Genesis, they're right toward the beginning of the Bible. Uh, they were the sons of Isaac and the grandsons of Abraham. And, uh, and they were brothers, as it says here. And if you read their stories, they were both actually pretty simple guys. Uh, but God chose Jacob to be the one through whom he was going to work his plan to save humanity from their sins. And now many centuries have passed, and both of the brothers have become the forefathers of whole nations. So Jacob was the father of the nation of Israel, and Esau was the father of the nation of Edom, which was one of the nations right across the the Jordan River there, bordering on Israel, And both of those nations had also proved to be sinful, just like their forefathers, and they had proved to be unfaithful to God. And so God brought judgment on both of those nations. And that's what he's referring to here when he says, "'I have, re- I have turned his hill country into a wasteland.'" See, the nation of Edom had been destroyed by invaders." just in the same way that the nation of Israel had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And the people that Malachi was writing to, of course, they knew all this background. That's why he, did, he just kind of refers to it here. They, they're familiar with all this stuff. Then he goes on and he says, he says, Edom may say, and Edom, of course, that's Esau's people, though, they have, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So basically what God is saying here is that the judgment against Edom is going to continue. They will not be able to restore their nation because God will see to it that they are not able to restore. So, how is that supposed to convince the Jews that God loves them? Well, it's because they have returned. Jerusalem has been rebuilt, the temple is back, the walls are back, the people have come back from the exile. So the situation of the Jews is very different from the situation of the Edomites. Uh, But it is the cause of the difference that's the key thing here, right? God is the one who brought the Jews back from exile. And it is God who has blessed His people so that they could rebuild their walls and their temple. Their nation has been restored by God. They were sinful, they deserved a judgment just like Edom, but God's love for them caused Him to forgive, and they were restored, unlike their brothers over in Edom. And all of that is because God has forgiven the sins of Israel. They are restored because their sins have been wiped away, and their relationship with their God has been restored, and it's God's forgiveness that leads to God's blessing. Both nations have suffered the judgment of God, but only Israel has been forgiven. And Edom remains under God's judgment. Why has Israel been forgiven? Well, it's, it's right there in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. See, God loves His people, and because of His great love for them, They are forgiven. Was God obligated to forgive them? Did He have to do it? No. Uh, The contrasting fate of the people of Edom clearly shows that God does not have to forgive anyone. And in fact, He does not forgive everyone. But the Jews had been forgiven and restored to their place. But they're having a really hard time appreciating that fact. So, when the prophet tells them that God loves them, they say, how has He loved us? So, here's the question then. How much has God loved you? These people didn't think that God had loved them very much. And we're about to see that that belief caused them to have some pretty serious failures in their relationship with God. So what about you? How much does God love you? And is your belief in God's love changing the way that you live? It isn't easy to really grasp the extent of God's love for us. Right? We see that taught in the Bible in the example of people like these guys in, in Malachi's day. Um, but also, besides the examples, the Bible just plain tells us that it is hard to understand the love of God. In one of his letters to uh, one of the churches that he had started, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians there that he is praying for them. And that's a pretty standard thing. Paul often tells people, I'm praying for you. And then he tells them a little bit of what it is that he's praying. What is the content of, the, of his prayers for these people. And here's a section of the prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. Um, I'm starting in verse uh, 17. He says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, in order to fully grasp the fullness of God's love, we need the power of God working in us to help us to understand that. That's not just because we're bad at understanding love. Uh, it's, It's It's because God's love is so incredible that it's hard for us to really grasp it. But Paul prays that these Christians, and notice that he includes us in there. Clearwater Church is listed right here in this verse. It says um, that you may may have power together with all the Lord's people. That's us, all the Lord's people. (laughs) We're part of that, and Paul's praying for us that we will understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. Even though it surpasses knowledge, he still wants that we'll know it. Now, in order to help us fulfill Paul's prayer for us here, I want to do an affirmation right now where we're going to personalize this verse a bit and say it out loud together. And so first I'm going to read the affirmation, and then uh, we can all say this together to help us to grasp and understand and accept these truths. So here it is. It says, I have been rooted and established in love. I seek God's power to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ for me, and I want to know Jesus' love for me, even though it surpasses knowledge." Let's say that together. I have been rooted and established in love. I seek God's power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for me. I want to know Jesus' love for me, even though it surpasses knowledge. Now, one reason why it is important for us to understand the love of God for us, beyond just that it feels good to be loved— is that the more we understand how much Jesus loves us, the more we will love Him. And there's an incident from Jesus' life that illustrates this perfectly. Um, And Jesus did some teaching about it right as it happened. Uh, And and we find that story in Luke chapter 7. Jesus was invited in this chapter to dinner at a Pharisee's house. And so, he, he's uh, going to one of these, these, these formal dinners in those days, were kind of semi-public um, events, and people would be kind of going in and out of the house, and, uh, and, and it was uh, kind of a public thing. And, uh, and one of the people who came into the house during this particular dinner was a woman who, uh, according to Luke's description here in the gospel, she had, quote, lived a sinful life. Now, of course, uh, we're all sinners, but this woman was uh, a notorious sinner who was known in the community as a sinful person and uh and in fact, Jesus even says that she had committed many sins, so the host and probably others too uh thought that, uh, that this woman probably shouldn't be there. But she came into the dinner, and, and, and apparently she had had some interactions with Jesus previously that caused her to really appreciate and love Jesus. And so she comes into the dinner, and she starts demonstrating her love for Jesus by washing His feet in a very extravagant way. And so the host looks at this, and he's thinking. This is inappropriate. Uh, Here is this sinful woman, and she is touching him. And so then in in verse 40, um, Jesus responds. He says, "Uh, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And then Jesus tells a short parable. And, And in his parable, he says, two people... "'Owed money to a certain moneylender. "'One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. "'Neither of them had the money to pay him back, "'so he forgave the debts of both. "'Now, which of them will love him more?' "'Simon replies, "'I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. "'You have judged correctly,' Jesus said." See, then Jesus goes on to point out that this Pharisee uh, uh, hadn't even provided a basin for Jesus to wash his own feet when he came in. Um, and, 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 And here this woman was, and she's washing his feet using her tears for water and her hair for a towel. She also put some very expensive perfume on his feet. So, You know, I'm not sure that that's actually a very effective way to clean feet. Um, I think uh, tears are kind of a, a pretty limited source of water there for cleaning, and hair doesn't really make a very good towel. But that's not the point. The point is that she was extravagantly displaying her great love for Jesus. And so then Jesus says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Now, I suspect that this was a big part of the problem with the people in Malachi's day. They were like this Pharisee. In their estimation, they had small need for forgiveness. God hadn't really done all that much if He'd forgiven them, and so they loved God little, since they judged that His love for them was little. But just as it wasn't true for the people in Malachi's day, it wasn't true for this Pharisee either. Right? Yeah, he was a respected member of the community, unlike the the, the woman here. He was a religious leader, he did lots of religious things, he knew his Bible, he spent time at the temple, he spent time in prayer, but none of those things meant that he had little to be forgiven. Here's what Jesus said about some of these uh, Pharisees in, uh, in another passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus describes the uh, The life of the Pharisees, and he says this, he says, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel.' "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous.' But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You see, this Pharisee didn't love much because he didn't feel like he had much to forgive. Because he did not see himself as a recipient of mercy and grace and forgiveness. He saw himself as a pretty good guy who if he'd committed some sins, they weren't really any of the big ones. And so, uh, you know, he was just doing a little better than people like this sinful woman who was touching Jesus' feet. And so Jesus' statement was very true when he says, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So how much does God love you? How much has Jesus forgiven you? Um, But what if you've done a lot of bad things? Then does God still love you? I mean, do you see this story? I mean, (laughs) the poster child for being loved by God and loving Him in return is the person who is most sinful. So yes, no matter what you've done, Jesus loves sinful people, and He loves you, and He stands ready to forgive you and all of your sins. And of course, you know, Jesus taking our sins on the cross and suffering the just penalty that we deserved so that we could be forgiven, that was the ultimate demonstration of His love for us. But but of course, He did many other things that show His love for us as well, right? Right? He gives us many good things to enjoy in life. He reveals Himself to us. He answers our prayers. He has adopted us as His children and given us the privilege of serving in His kingdom and many other things as well. God loves us, and His love for us is extreme. And the more we realize it, the more we will love Him in return. So now let's go back to Malachi and see what was the result of the people's lack of understanding of God's love in their own lives. And we'll see that starting in verse 6 of Malachi chapter 1, where it says, "'A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me?' says the Lord Almighty." It is your priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You see, they, uh, just like the first time when God said, I love you, and they come back with, how have you loved us? Again, they come back with, how have we showed contempt? And we'll see uh, next week when Pastor Mike finishes uh, some more of Malachi that this is a repeated pattern throughout the book, that God makes a statement and the people come back and challenge it. How is that true? And here they're saying, how have we shown contempt for you? He answers in verse 7, by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? You see, when God appeared on Mount Sinai and taught people how to worship him properly and how to bring sacrifices and all these things, he was very specific about what kind of sacrifices were acceptable to offer. And uh, the animals to be given as sacrifices had to be flawless. So blind, lame, discolored animals, not acceptable. And this was, of course, a picture of the real sacrifice that was coming. All of those animal sacrifices and things were just like a foreshadow of Jesus' sacrifice for us, the real sacrifice that did uh, bring justice for our sins. And all these animals, um, they needed to be flawless because they were a symbol of Jesus, the flawless Sinless man, but the people were bringing in defective sacrifices, the animals that they didn't really want anyway, they brought that to God and uh, and of course, uh you know God really points out the the, the problem of these people and their lack of regard for him by pointing out that they would never bring these t- as taxes to the governor, so they were had more fear and more respect for their human governor than they did for God. Verse 9, Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. So did you hear what God is saying here? You see, these people are bringing sacrifices. They're coming to the temple. They're lighting fires on the altar. They're sacrificing animals, as Moses asked them to do. They're not neglecting the worship of God. They're doing it. They're not just sleeping in and and skipping their worship. They're not keeping all of their, their wealth and their animals to themselves and refusing to give anything to God. But God does not want their worship. He longs for them to shut the temple so that they will stop worshiping Him. Did you hear that? He longs for them to lock up the temple so that they will stop worshiping him. He says, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. See, sometimes we act like God is kind of a a beggar who should be happy with whatever he can get. If we aren't willing to give him our best, then he'll be happy with our second best or our third best. <laughs> he'll be happy with whatever we give him, even a blind sheep. Better than no sheep, right? Because I really don't have to give God anything, do I? If I'm offering a sheep, he should be good with whatever it is that I'm willing to give. Right? But, you know, of course we don't offer sheep anymore. So what's the equivalent today? What are we talking about here? Maybe only showing up for church a couple times a month when you don't have anything better to do. Or maybe giving God from the leftovers of your income. Or maybe uh, you show up for church but you're not willing to serve In your community, and do any kind of ministry. However, we define it in our lives, the problem that these people had and that we often have is that they were not willing to give God their best. They worshiped God, they were religious people, but their religion was half hearted. They were not willing to fully commit to God. And God was not halfway pleased with them. God did not look at them and say, well, at least they're doing something. It'd be better if they were doing a little more, but I'll take what I can get. No, God said, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. See, that Pharisee, he invited Jesus to be the guest of honor at a dinner, right? That's not nothing. To publicly eat with someone was a kind of association with them that was meaningful in that culture. But he failed to follow through. He did not treat Jesus as an honored guest. He didn't show him the love that the woman did. She gave him her best. She honored Jesus in the most extravagant way that she could. What was the difference? She understood his love for her, and so she had great love for him. The people in Malachi's day, they didn't appreciate God's love for them. God says, I have loved you. And they said, How have you loved us? Here, have a lamb sheep. So that's the challenge for us. What is our worship of God like? Do we give him our best? Do we make God a priority in our lives? Or are we giving him the flawed animals from our flock? And most importantly, if we feel that our worship of God has not been wholehearted as it should be, what are we going to do to change that? God wants to have your whole heart. He loves you. He wants you to love Him. And the more we understand His love, the more we will love Him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love that you have for us, and we pray with the Apostle Paul that you would enable us to know that love that is beyond knowing. May the Holy Spirit be at work in our hearts so that we can appreciate all the things that you've done for us, and how we ought to be grateful to you and love you in return. May our lives be like the woman at the dinner, loving you in the greatest way that we know how. Amen.